Good morning, Gold Avenue Church family and friends. This is Pastor Gina, and today we are going to be looking at Sermon 5 in our sermon series, and this um, sermon is on Sin Disrupts Shalom, and we'll be looking at Genesis 3 if you want to open your Bibles there. And before we enter in, let's um, pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is alive and active and sharp. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you would bless the preaching of this word and that you would bless each of us as hearers to listen, to obey, to respond to it appropriately. Lord, um, we long to see your kingdom come in its fullness. And we know that there are great lessons in this passage to teach us about that and how to cooperate. And so we pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Genesis 2 and then um, Genesis 3. So Genesis 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, which means open hostility and confrontation, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. The Garden of Eden. Eden means bliss or delight. And certainly as we read through the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we get the idea of um, shalom, of universal flourishing, that everything is whole, everything's delightful, Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. The relationship between um, God and his creation and just the order in which he made it and um, creating these the sky and the waters and the land. And then after he created these containers, then he filled them. The next three days he spent making all the, the stars and the birds and the fish and all the living creatures, and then the pinnacle of his creation, he creates humanity in his very own image, and he says, this is very good. Very good is the way he describes it, and it was very good. The relationship between God and the people, there was intimate communion, there was communication ongoing, they could just talk to each other and um, share and God said, hey, I'm going to delegate this authority to you and you're going to rule and you're going to subdue and you're going to fill the earth and you're going to have the opportunity to name things and which is naming their destiny and um, you're going to be laborers and the relationship you're going to have with each other, Adam and Eve, and it's going to be marvelous. You're going to enjoy working together in partnership so much. You're going to be co-laborers. You came side by side. There's this mutual respect And there's this love and there's satisfying work and there's very clear purpose and there's, um, there, everything is just so good. And then we see how sin disrupts shalom. And God had given within all this freedom, all these plants that you can eat, all these fruits that bear all kinds of wonderful, the trees that bear these fruits. And there's just one tree. Just one tree. Don't eat that one from that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. One boundary. 
and all this freedom. And what did they do? They committed sin, which means that they acted in a way that displeased God and deserves blame. When you have any action or thought or desire that you do or that you don't do that God wanted you to do, either way, what it does is it breaks the shalom. Suddenly things aren't the way they're supposed to be because God designed everything perfectly and interrelated so that together there would be this wholeness and flourishing and and um and peace and bliss. Things the way they're supposed to be and then getting disrupted. Well, when I thought about that, there's this story and um it's probably kind of may sound like a silly story, but it's the story of when I had my I think it was probably been the only time I've had a brand new vehicle. And it was when Kaylee was little, maybe we had been married about seven years and had gotten a little money from my grandma and got a brand new Toyota Previa um, van. And it was cadet blue with a little metallic in the paint. And when the sun shined on it, it looked like a great big blue Easter egg. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing ever. And so I was driving my van and I went to pick her up from after I got out of work one day. And the babysitter had told me, okay, the snow's been melting. The kids have been getting restless over the winter. And so we put a couple of posts on either side of the driveway um, with a little chain and some flags on it so that during the day when they're here, if it's nice, they can go out and they can ride on the scooters and the tricycles and big wheels and stuff. And so I I heard her tell me that several times, and then I was there to pick her up, and um, she said, now remember and be careful about that new post that's out there by the driveway. Well, I got Kaylee loaded in, and I got myself in the car, and I started to back out, and you know where this story is going, don't you? But as I go, I'm backing out, and um, suddenly I hear a little sound, but I disregard it. And I think I might have even had the thought to look over my shoulder, but I didn't. And I kind of just kept on going, and I'm going very slow because I'm driving out of the babysitter's driveway. But I hear this, you know, kind of like scraping sound, and then I stop. And I get out, and I see that this metal C-hook that's in the post has scratched all the way down my brand-new side of my van. I disregarded the warning. I wasn't careful. And I stood there with a pit in the middle of my stomach, just like, oh, I can't believe this just happened. Oh. And so I quickly drive home. And in my nursing uniform, which is all white, white pants, white blouse, white nylons, white shoes, I grab a bucket of water out of the kitchen and I go out with soapy water and I'm trying to get the salt off my van because I think maybe I've gotten fortunate and it was just a scrape of salt that just got wiped off down the side of my van. But no, I'm washing my van and I'm seeing that there is a a deep crease in the side of my van that gets deeper as it goes. It didn't quite pierce through like a sardine can, but it was really close And about that time, Dane drives in the driveway, and he's never in seven years seen me washing a vehicle. And he's like, hey, what's going on? 
and friends, I didn't even want to tell him. I'm like, oh, I just wanted to wash the van. And anyway, and then I'm like, but really what I did was I ran into a post. And so anyway, the rest is history. But the, the crease never got fixed. I lived with that, the mark of my disobedience, the mark. But not only was there a mark to remind me, but that opened up the paint. And it allowed the salt and the elements to get in there and corrosion to start. And that's where the rust started along the whole side of my van. Friends, the image of my van was marred. And the shalom, the bliss that I had about a brand new, shiny, beautiful vehicle suddenly was just (laughs) decimated in my ignorance. And in my disregard of that one boundary she had told me about. Well, in a very, that's a very simple little analogy, but it shows what happens when we disregard what God says and we allow sin to take place in our lives. And suddenly what we know we shouldn't do and we disregard it, or maybe we just flagrantly plow right into that boundary, but we experience the horrible effects, and it disrupts our peace, it disrupts our relationships, and um, sin corrupts and destroys everything it touches. Well, not only do we have this temptation that we are given the choice to either obey God or not, in the Garden of Eden they had the choice because they weren't robots, But then they also encounter not only their own need to make a choice, but they encounter somebody that's going to try to coax them in the wrong way. And who is this serpent? Well, actually, Scripture tells us in other places that they refer to as the ancient serpent in Revelations. This is Satan. And he's come because he hates God and he hates anything that bears the image of God. And so he's going to try to take us out. And he's going to try to take them down. And so what he does to Adam and Eve is he plants doubt. And he says, did God really say that? And he plants denial. Oh, you surely won't die. And then he plants this delusion in their mind. You're going to be like God. All you have to do is just eat that. See, he was really tricky. He was clever. He was the most clever. He was crafty. He was deceptive. He was subtle. And he's trying to destroy them and trying to destroy the bliss of the Garden of Eden. And really, when um, you think about it, when he tries to create doubt, did God really say that? Did God really say that? You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Is God trying to deny you of something that would be good for you? Can you trust that God's good? Can you trust that God has your best in mind? It's that kind of doubt that the enemy tries to plant in Eve, that God's withholding something that would be good. And he tries to plant that in Eve, and he tries to plant that in us. And he says, oh, you won't die. You can get away with this. One time won't hurt. That's the insinuation. And how many of us have taken the fall and made some kind of terrible mistake in sin because we fell into some pressure, and somebody was used to speak the same kind of words like, oh, that, you surely won't get in trouble. We won't get caught. One time won't hurt. And then the delusion that you could be like God. 
And I tell you, there's vulnerability when people aren't secure that God loves them, that he is totally good, and that he would withhold no good thing from them. And when they feel insecure about that, then they want to say, well, being like God isn't enough, just being in his likeness. I want to be equal to him. And pride and ambition gets in the way, and it fuels rebellion. And it fueled rebellion in Eve and in Adam as they um, fell into the trickery and willfully sinned. And when they willfully sinned, there were woeful effects. And like the sound of that metal hook that went scraping down the side of my van, down through the timeline of history, there's a scraping through every human heart because our nature was corrupted. And because of their sin, every one of us that has um, been born since that time has a corrupt human nature that wants to choose sin always and all the time. And what happened to the effects of sin is that it broke the shalom, that suddenly the impact on the relationship with God where they had enjoyed communion and sweet fellowship and direct communication, suddenly they're fearful and they're hiding and they're ashamed. Shame entered their life. There was no shame in the Garden of Eden before sin. And there was separation, ultimately, as a result of sin. There was also an impact on each other. They went from trust and love and respect to suddenly they're blaming. Well, Adam's blaming God. Like, it's that woman. You're the one who gave me her in the first place. And not only is he blaming God, he's blaming the woman. She's the one that gave it to me. And then she's blaming the serpent. And so shame and blame start coming in. And they don't trust each other anymore. And there's conflict and there's dishonor. In Genesis 3.16, I've never quite understood this. In the um, NIV, it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And as I did a little bit more study, the New Living Translation translates it this way, and I really think this is more accurate. And you will desire to control your husband, and he will rule over you. And the Net Study Bible takes the that, and if you want to study this more, but the literal, what it says in the original language is, and toward your husband, your desire. And they cross-reference that same word being used in Genesis 4-7, where sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so this idea that the husband and the wife are going to be in conflict from here on out, because um, until, of course, until Christ, if we know the rest of the story, that can be restored in Christ and have a mutually edifying relationship. But we see the effects of sin here is that it destroys their relationship and causes a constant um, conflict. There's also the effects of creation, that suddenly it goes from shalom and flourishing to thorns and thistles and the ground being cursed by God. And the effects of that roll out in so many ways, pollution, Um, I'm not going to get into naming all these things right now. We probably will pick that up in a future sermon. But the impact on their relationships, the impact on their role, they were supposed to rule and have dominion. And what did um, Eve do? She didn't rule and shut down this serpent when it was coming against what God had said. 
And so right there, she started to compromise her role. They had a role to to have dominion, and suddenly um, they're going to be in a constant battle and tempted towards um, listening to some other voices other than God. They're going to have pain and toilsome work that where they just delighted in the garden and um, being tenders of this garden that was just flourishing. Suddenly it's going to be dry ground and thorns and thistles and sweaty, hard work and painful child labor is going to be the impact of sin. The impact of sin is so serious, friends, that we're going to spend the next four weeks unpacking this further. And I want to say from a pastoral perspective, we're not doing this to bring shame to anybody or to make anybody uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable. But what we're doing is we're trying to help us all see together how God's design for shalom means that we have to, like as the scripture keeps going through, the Lord God said this, the Lord God said this, the Lord God said this, but how did the serpent refer to him? Oh, did God? And so it, the, the, that's a little insight that Pastor Jalisa gave me, actually. But really, are we going to want to see the world flourish? And if so, then we have to acknowledge that he's Lord God, that he gets to call the shots. But we trust him that he's calling the shots because he's good. And he knows he designed this place in the first place. He knows how it's supposed to go. So it flourishes and so that we flourish. And sin disrupts it. And so we're going to look for the next four weeks about how how are the effects of sin and how does that grow? And um, what about this character, Satan, that's opposing and against us? We've seen how sin destroyed and disrupted the shalom of the Garden of Eden. But I want to point out and highlight something else that's in this passage, and it's the good news of the gospel. This, in chapter 3, is the first hint of the gospel in the Bible. And the gospel is the good news of a good king who rules in such a way that everything under his reign will flourish and prosper. And we read in verse 15, where he's um, talking to the snake, and he says, I will put enmity, hostility, Between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in that passage is the promise of one who would come as the seed of the woman, who would be the offspring, who will finally crush once and for all the head of that ancient serpent, Satan. And he does this on the cross. And he does this in the resurrection. And so there's victory through the cross. And Satan is is crushed. And then finally, in the final judgment, destroyed forever, sent to an eternal damnation in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20. And so we see that our good king, the first thing he did after he had inquiry with the man and the woman is he turned to the perpetrator, the serpent, and he dealt with him and said, this is the way it's going to go down in your life. And then what he does is he turns back after he's listened 
to the man and the woman. He turns back to talk to them. And what he did was he called out a confession. In verse 11, literally it says, Did you from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat from it, eat? And by that word order, it's putting emphasis on, you didn't do that thing that I told you not to do, did you? Like, you didn't do that thing. You didn't eat from that tree, did you? And when he does it, he's not acting like a judge because he already knew. But he's acting more like a physician. He's drawing out a confession because he cares for their salvation. The first step in their salvation is going to be recognizing and acknowledging their sin. And it's the very first step in a progression that we're going to see throughout the Bible of his plan for restoration. And so he draws out a confession. And then as a good and just God, he implements justice. But even in his justice, it's a mercy. Because when they recognize the consequences of their sin, they're going to, it, it will help them to want to return because they'll recognize what they lost and want to return back to relationship with the Lord. And so he implements the justice of there be separation, there'll be this pain, and he also gives them covering. And I think it's funny when I think about them sewing fig leaves together and um, how impractical that is. Maybe in the garden, never had they seen a dead leaf before. I mean, who knows? Maybe there just was nothing that died. Um, And so they sew these leaves together, and you know they're going to dry out and get brittle. And so God, in his compassion, he clothes them with something that's going to be more sturdy for the the journey that they're going to walk on. But more than just a practical covering, I think it's a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system, the giving of a life to cover sin, and ultimately being clothed in Christ. And so it's a picture of that restoration, I think, that he starts to paint from the very beginning. And so they're removed from the tree of life. The cherubim guard that so that they can't go back in and eat from the tree of life, leaving them in a perpetual sinful state, but rather waits the unveiling, as we'll see over this next year, of how God starts to plan and promise a plan of restoration. And so there's such hope, there's such love, and there's such a good king. And when I thought about this, and I've been meditating on the scripture, and I thought, you know, it's so unusual. Um, my parents, when I rebelled, that I wasn't the first thing they talked about or wanted to put forward to represent our family story. And yet here, this story is chapter 3, right here at the beginning of the story, and he's open about the fall and what happened with his very first children. And I think it's not his character to want to shame. And so what are you doing, Lord? Why is it so right up here in the front? And I think there's several reasons. One is I think that he just desires so much for his creatures and his creation to flourish. And he wants us to see that obedience is the way and that boundaries that he puts in place are for our flourishing. And he wants us to see the the very serious consequences of sin. I think he also wants us to have an answer for the world when um, we see so much evil and so much heartache and so much pain 
Um, Calvin said, every time that we see some kind of natural disaster, we should just look and grieve because of the atrocity of our sins. And so not saying that every disaster is a result directly of sin, but it's part of living in the fallen world that happened because of a sin. We have an answer. We all like to place blame. We'd like to say, oh, it's because of this or it's because of that ideology or it's because of this corruption or this group of people. Just like Adam and Eve were placing blame all around. But actually, we with Adam and Eve, each one of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've opened the door. It's like me driving along that post with that hook just scraping down the side of my van each of us have participated in sin each of us have been like opening up a wound that just perpetuates corruption and violence and disease and disaster and relational conflict and each of us have an opportunity to confess our sins and i think that this gives us a picture a beautiful picture of how that he calls us to evaluate what's going on and repent. I want to close with this, just a few questions. You know, the the enemy said, did God really say? Did God really say? And I want to just ask us to evaluate, do I know what God really said? <laughs> Do I know what's in God's word? And will I commit to growing in knowing and obeying God's word? I want to ask the question, do I and do we fully trust God is good and good for good to us? Because friends, if we don't, that makes us very, very vulnerable to temptation and to the enemy praying and to sin. And so I want to ask that question. Do I truly and fully trust that God is good and good to me? A third question I want to ask is, will I watch for conflict and be quick to look for how sin might be at play in my life? How am I contributing? Am I having any sinful ways that might be contributing? Because we recognize that How did that conflict start between the man and the woman? How does conflict happen between our coworkers? How does conflict happen within our neighbors or in our extended families? But somewhere, somehow, sin or the effects of sin is at work. And so will I be quick to look not at the speck in somebody else's eye, but the log in my own? Will I be quick to confess my sin? And then, will I boldly resist the enemy and help others do the same? Moses wrote these words in Genesis 3 for us. And at the end of his life, the one that was going to take his place in leadership was Joshua. And the first thing the Lord God said to Joshua are words that I want to close this sermon with, because I believe these are good words for us as well. This is a charge. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. 
then you will be prosperous and successful. May we too, church, flourish and succeed in our kingdom mission as we keep our eyes on God and his word. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.